Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 72. I think the biggest thing that I can impress on anyone today is that this disease touches on so many other issues and really can't be ignored in any way. Donald Schurschlitt is a 24-year-old gay, HIV-positive activist, writer, and graphic designer. After coming out at age 19, he led an underground LGBTQ community at the Christian college he attended. Uh, And he's the creator of Campus Pride's Shame List, the nation's most comprehensive list of anti-LGBTQ religious colleges and universities. Donald is also one half of the team behind Queerly Beloved Tees, uh, which is an apparel company for LGBTQ people of faith. Uh, he and Kevin Garcia run that together. Uh, if y'all don't have tees from Queerly Beloved, you should probably go pause this podcast and shop. Go shop. That's my advice. I'm really excited to have Donald on the podcast today. We are talking about being HIV positive. We're talking about HIV and AIDS, uh, things that I don't feel like we often talk about in our faith communities. Uh, I know I certainly have had to go to a fair amount of effort to learn about it. And so I'm so grateful for the work that Donald is doing in faith communities to, to educate and to help uh, end some of the stigma around around HIV and AIDS. No announcements again this week, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Donald, hi, welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining. Yeah. (laughs) So to start, uh, the question I ask everyone, uh, how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Yeah, um, so I identify as a gay cis man, um, a a Christian, a white man, um, someone frankly who comes with a lot of I'm sure people who listen to this podcast under maybe have heard the phrase privilege thrown around a lot in here. Um, so I come with someone who's a lot of got a lot of privilege. And I think um, what that means basically for me is that I've had to learn, I unlearn uh, or learn how to deal with that privilege, um, learn what privilege was, learn how to deal with it, and then learn kind of what that meant for my faith. Um, I think for me, being someone who is very, uh, comes from, a very middle class background, um, raised by a very white conservative family, um, and I was taught to, you know, believe in a certain set of beliefs. And then, as I came out, and as my faith was cha- faith was really challenged by other people, that um, I recognized that I'd frankly, people were treating me the way that I treated people my entire like 
youth, uh, in childhood, uh, in adolescence, that I was that people were now questioning whether I was a Christian, and I had done the same thing to, frankly, uh, people who identified different with different political beliefs than mine, people who weren't white, people who weren't uh, middle class, people who didn't uh, think you should stand for the Pledge of Allegiance or something like that. Um, and just different things like that, where I really kind of just shoved their views aside. Um, and so for me, I think I think the w- most important way that the, my faith has impacted my identity is that I haven't necessarily given up the fact that I'm this white, cis, gay, privileged man, um, but that I've been able to kind of own it and to accept it and recognize where my blind spots are. And my faith has been a way for me to then come in and find dialogue, space for dialogue, space for unity, space for compassion for other people. Um, because despite us all, despite my fellow believers and fellow people, frankly, um, anyone, anyone coming from a very different background from me, I can see, I think, my faith has been able to say, as a Christian, I can say, I see God in you. I see God in this other person. And for me to be able to see God in that other person has allowed me to then embrace them and accept them exactly as they are in a way that other people, frankly, have did for me when I came out um, that allowed me to accept myself. Um, so because I'm embraced and because I'm loved by God and by other people, I'm able to do the same to ideally anyone. Um, and I am grateful for the people who still challenge me on that matter to this day. So, I mean, uh, it sounds like such a shift in, because I, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I identify a lot with that, that kind of idea of, of realizing like all of a sudden people are doing to me what I've always done <laughs> or what I had <laughs> always been doing in that coming out moment. Uh, and it's such a shift to start seeing God in those people that you otherwise would have cast out. Um, yeah. And it's painful. It's it's hard to see that and also like extremely liberating. <laughs> yeah. it's. I think for me, it was a lot of it came down to being extremely grateful that I was suddenly able to, not suddenly, it was a process, but that I was able to really, I think, begin understanding other people's stories. It felt like so many of I placed it felt like I had placed so many like constrictions on myself on what I was allowed to embrace on what I was allowed to enjoy and when and when that changed for me I felt like I was freed a little bit like you said liberated um at the same time it also felt a little I think it it's hard not to feel a little bit ashamed to be like wow I was a really crappy person um or at least that I had placed all these things on myself that I had, you know, pr- that I had been taught and then had willfully, you know, basically disallowed myself from loving and embracing other people. Um, so I think I had to learn a, lo- a lot about how to also accept that shame and then also let it go, I think, to say, like, that was where I came from. That was the space where I was. Um, but that doesn't have to be me now. And while recognizing that, I think, recognizing that the ways in which those, those constrictures, I don't know what the word, the confines that I placed on myself, um, I think, had hurt other people as well, and owning that, while also saying that, you know, 
I've grown and I've changed and recognizing that people have grace for that and being grateful for that. So I think that's kind of been a big part of the growing process for me um, is allowing myself to accept that I've changed, allowing myself to accept that I don't have to feel ashamed forever of my history of being frankly discriminatory and intolerant. So that's, that's like the, the strength to be able to, well, I don't know if strength is the right word, but that, that shifting of being able to look back at old parts of ourselves, the parts of ourselves that we're ashamed of, the parts of ourselves that, that we don't like anymore because we have changed and to be able to hold that with grace, compassion, whatever language you want to put on that. That's, that's a radical thing. Like that's not easy work to do. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking that's a good transition to talking about HIV. Um, mm. I think because when I came out um, as HIV positive, I mean, uh, that was it. I, it really felt like kind of coming out all over again. Um, it really felt very stressful to me uh, emotionally I I had come out already, and it was almost unfair that I had to come out all over again with this totally different thing, but like slightly related. So I think it was just another way in which being like, no, it's okay, I can be HIV positive, and I can be these other things, and they're not like it doesn't make me a worse person or a more bad person. I don't know. It it was just another, I think, a way in which shame has been can be used to prevent us from being whole healthy people so yeah i I mean so so you mentioned like this this feeling of having to come out a second time and and i feel like so many hiv positive people i know have said similar things feeling like it's a a second coming out uh and, and it's unfair and and i mean that highlights the amount of stigma that's around HIV and and the shame that can come with that because of cultural messaging that's all around that's been attached to HIV. Um, and, and I'd be curious if you could maybe maybe share a little bit of that story, uh, your story, uh, and and maybe talk about that stigma a little bit. I found out I was HIV positive um, in May of 2017, um, and it was a complete shock. Um, I had, I really had no clue. I was not expecting it. Um, in fact, the doctors called me, I'd gone in for a routine STD test. Um, the doctors called and I walked outside of work cause I was like, oh, I should don't want to, I don't want to like talk about my potential STDs in front of my coworkers. So I walked outside and I'm walking around and the doctor was like, are you sitting down? And I was like, no, I'm just walking around outside. And I was like, uh, and she was like, okay. She's like, do you want to sit down? And I was like, oh no, I have must have like, I don't know, gonorrhea or chlamydia. I thought I had something that was like curable. Um, and I really was not concerned. And then I was like, I was like, okay, sure. I can sit down. Like I thought she was, I really thought in my head at that moment that she was telling me to sit down because maybe I, like, the connection was poor or something. I don't know. Um, And so I sat down, and she was just like, well, the results came back, and you're HIV positive. And I was like, oh. (laughs) I think my first thoughts were, like, disbelief. Um, 
And then immediately, I mean, we were talking a little bit about Shane. I think immediately it was like, well, you did that to yourself kind of thing, um, which I think is just kind of the message gay men are told, gay queer people are told their whole lives uh, in regards to their queerness. Um, and so this is just an extension of that, um, of, well, this is just what happens to gay to gay men is they get HIV. Um and never mind, at this point, um, I had known, I knew a lot about HIV, actually, a lot more than I think a lot of people ever know, and definitely a lot more than many gay men in their 20s uh, who grew up in conservative Christian households know, um, and went to a conservative Christian college know. Um, but I'd uh, been fortunate to kind of become like the resident like sex expert on my, in my little LGBT community at my college, so I'd you know, understood the importance of getting tested. Uh, I'd understood, you know, how HIV spreads, uh, knew a lot about, you know, HIV treatment and all these different things. Um, definitely, and didn't really necessarily attach any stigma, I thought, to um, people who are HIV positive. Um, I'd briefly dated HIV positive people. It just, it didn't bother me um, necessarily. Um, but I, I think it's very different when you're the one who's HIV positive. I think it, I was looking back, I think I'm still surprised at how much it kind of unearthed for me um, in terms of stigma and shame. Um, I think it's very easy to say like, sometimes sometimes I think it's very easy to say, I don't judge you, another person, for having this trait. But then when you're the one who has that trait, I think it can be harder for us to accept ourselves sometimes than it is to accept other people. Um, and so I, like I said, in that moment, even though I thought I'd, you know, worked through so much of my, you know, internalized homophobia and internalized shame, um, a lot of it, and I, and I really had, um, I really think a lot of it came flooding back. Um, a lot of the ways that I, again, been willing to kind of embrace and accept and show grace to other people. I wasn't really capable of doing to myself in that moment, um, and thankfully I had just so many friends around, um, who I told, um, who I was able to tell, um, who were able to like basically support me, um, in the like next couple weeks. Um, I just started dating someone, um, and he flew out like the f- next week to come spend like several days with me, um. While and rather than like break up with me because I was HIV positive, um, my sister came down and like spent a week with me. Um, I had friends taking me out to dinner like every night to make sure I was doing okay. Um, and it's like I'm again, I have like a health, I have health insurance, I have good social circles, I have I had support from the LGBT center in town. I had so many good resources, um, and that's definitely like an element of I was very lucky to have those things. Um, but I think I, I think I, I think if I didn't have those things, it would have been a lot harder. If that makes sense, I don't know where I was definitely going with this with this question. After a well, while, I might have lost the thread. Um, but I think talking about going back to kind of the experience of shame, I just um, well, I'll say this one last thing. Um, when I called some family members to share the news with them, um, the first thing that one of my family members asked me when I came out, when I told them I was HIV positive was, um, can I, can I swear on this podcast or no? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. 
he's uh, this person said, well, how many guys did you have to fuck to get that one? Fortunately, um, I had prepared myself for not the best response. Maybe not that exact response, but not the best response. And I was kind of able to be like, that's not an appropriate uh, question to ask. That's not at all okay. It doesn't, it's not a question of how many guys or what kind of person. It's just, it takes one person. Um, But I think that was just an example. That's an example of just like the ways in which I think I've been, that people have been taught to blame the HIV positive individual for getting HIV. Um, And frankly, even when I was asked this question, like obviously at that point, I'd kind of prepared myself for that, for that kind of inappropriate line of questioning, but it wasn't like that was a question I'd never asked myself. Um, It wasn't like, like I said, in that first few moments after, um, in those first moments after being diagnosed, and like hearing my diagnosis, I think I would be lying if I didn't say I'd in a way ask myself that question um, and blame myself. Like I said, a lot of that old shame just kind of came back. I feel like HIV, like we we attach or have traditionally attached like morality to it, or at least the church has ta- attached morality to mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and you, you mentioned earlier, like the, the fact that there's so few queer people who grew up within Christian contexts who know anything about HIV, like it, it's mm-hmm. just been hidden or been presented as a, as a moral failing. Both of those are, are not good things. Right. Um, and, and so, so I'm curious and, and this may feel like very like basic level, but, but for those of us who don't know anything about HIV, mm-hmm. <laughs> people who are listening, who, who this may be the first time they've ever heard a conversation about this um, because we don't talk about it. What are the things that we need to know? I think generally people, when they think of HIV in gen across any sort of demographic, a lot of people think of HIV in America I mean, I'll say I don't necessarily want to speak to globally how think people think of HIV, but in America, um, people think of HIV as something that was happened in the past, something that is resolved now, even if maybe it still exists today. Um, I think people know that it's a deadly disease um, that killed a lot of people, and that it is associated with uh, gay men. Um, I think that's kind of generally the things that people think of. Uh, when they think about HIV in America. Um, I think what people don't necessarily recognize is that you'll hear about the HIV epidemic in and the AIDS epidemic in the in the 80s, um, early 90s, but that epidemic never really went away for a lot of people. Um, obviously, we still have survivors of that epidemic living with us today who are lucky to make it through um, and get on treatment, um, but they're still facing side effects from the uh, medication that they were taking that was frankly poisonous to them, um, but stopped them from dying. Um, I think people aren't aware that there's still about 37 million people around the world living with HIV and AIDS, um, and that I think around 2 million of them are children. Um in America, I believe the numbers are around 1 million people living with HIV today. Um, and the crazier part of that is that one in seven of 
those people don't know that they're HIV positive. Um, so I think, and that also, I think the other thing is that people, again, think of it as a gay disease. Um, and that's, while I think it, statistically you can say gay, bisexual men who have sex with men often have the greatest risk, um, the risks are still very, very high for um, heterosexual women, especially, um, and especially heterosexual women of color. Um, I think that's the other thing that people don't recognize necessarily is that um, HIV is has always been a disease it was often, I think it's often seen as a gay men's disease, but what it really is, is a disease of like the poor and the lower class and the marginalized. Um, it's always affected um, people of color more than it has white people. And that's not due to it being more uh, to anything that has to do with, you know, people of color's ethnicity. It has to do with the fact that people of color are routinely denied adequate health care in this country. Um, it has to do with the fact that people of color are often denied adequate housing um, and are often uh, turning or are more likely to turn to sex work um, to make uh, ends meet, which puts them at risk. Um, it, it, there's so many, I think, other ish, big issues that we talk about often um, in America, whether we're talking about homophobia or institutional racism, whether we're talking about um, the ways we can uh, increase healthcare access for all people, um, whether we're talking about drug abuse, um, which is a growing issue in, with like the opioid crisis, um, all these things kind of come to a head in HIV. Um, all these things really overlap and affect HIV. And I think right now um, the statistics are not good for HIV, frankly, um, in terms of what if it could come back. I think the other thing that people don't necessarily know about HIV is, and feel free to cut this down if this is too much. Um, no, but this is great. The other thing that people don't necessarily think about with HIV is they say, "Oh, that's a thing in the past," and I think. It, <laughs> I think about the the bubonic plague is an example of another plague that everyone knows about. And it was, happened when, like the 1300s, I don't know, in the Middle Ages. And everyone knows about that. And they and uh, and the bubonic plague has never come back. At least, like not really. Like it's not killing people today. Um, in I at least not that I'm aware. Um. And so I think that people say, oh, well, that's just how HIV must be. And that's just not true. If current diagnosis rates continue, um, one in six American men who have sex with men will be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetime, um, which is a stunning amount to me. But then because of the ways in which this disease is racially discriminatory, that's one in two African-American or Black men who have sex with men, one in four Hispanic or Latino men, and one in 11 white men. So it's just the, and then the fact that um, we are having an increase in injection drug use due to the opioid epidemic, um, that's threatening to increase the number of new infections each year even further. Um, so I think what we're seeing is that we have a very real risk of a new AIDS crisis coming back in America. Um, and when people talk about, the president talked about in the State of the Union wanting to end HIV, and I think Fortunately, he was called out by a lot of people, but for people who may not necessarily know much about HIV and know much about the way how this disease 
is working today, um, they may say, okay, maybe that's a good priority to have. Even if he doesn't do anything, it's not necessarily going to hurt anyone too much. Um, it's because HIV is a thing of the past and things it's very much not, it's really a, it's very much with us today and we are at a very high risk for a new epidemic. And so it's a very scary time to be cutting funding for HIV AIDS research, to be cutting funding to healthcare, um, to be cutting funding to um, inner city communities that need um, adequate uh, drug clinics and things like that. Um, so I really think there's a lot to know about HIV, so hopefully I'm not overwhelming anyone. Um, but it just, it's very much, I think the biggest thing that I can impress on anyone today is that this disease really uh, touches on so many other issues and really can't be uh, ignored in any way. You really, it really is necessary to stop HIV now. I mean, I, I, I think that, br that brings into like stark reality um, how present the disease is in, in daily life and how hidden it is. Because, I mean, those stats are so, uh, I mean, I don't, I, staggering. It, it doesn't feel like a wrong word. <laughs> yeah. And yet... If if I were to say like the number of HIV positive people that I that I consciously know of, I think I can count on one hand. And and yet the stats would say no, there's so many more people, and and that and that just goes to show like we're not talking about it. No, I mean I think you're right. I think and we're not talking about it. And I think this is I've used this example before when talking to people. Um, Ronald, when when we talk about the AIDS crisis, we can't really talk about it without talking about. Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and the fact that they didn't do anything for the longest time. Um, and a lot of it had to do with wanting to appeal to evangelicals. Even if Ronald Reagan wasn't the greatest evangelical Christian, he could court the evangelical Christians by caving to a lot of their demands, which sounds a lot like a current president we might have. Um, and I think uh, that by the time that the Reagan administration even uttered the word AIDS, but Ronald Reagan didn't say AIDS until 1987. And in 1987, over 36,000 people had already been diagnosed and 21,000 had died. So, and I just, I can, I compare this to last year, just last year when we had, what was, well, we all stopped eating romaine lettuce. We all were like, we, it was out of Chipotle. We were all dying. We all hated it because we couldn't eat romaine because there's, uh, there's a huge like uh, disease going around, people said, um, and we all panicked. Well, when that happened, 65 people got sick, 25 were hospitalized, and no one had died. By the end of HIV's like first year of like it being uh, a known, what's really for? By the time that it was first like began, by the time that I'm gonna start that over. <laughs> By the end of 1981, which was the first year that scientists began tracking AIDS, even if they didn't know what it was at that time, um, 121 people in America had already died of AIDS. And it took another six years before the president could even say anything about it. And again, we all panicked because 65 people got sick from eating romaine lettuce and not a single person died. And I'm not saying that that's not scary or something, but just... The fact that we let 
121 people die and nothing was said, and then we let 21,000 people die and still nothing was said, just is is mind-boggling to me, looking at that history. And so much of that has to do with the ways in which the church and the moral majority worked to stigmatize and alienate people living with HIV. And I think we're still very much dealing with that today. Um, like you said, those statistics that I said are scary, and they are. Um, but so much of the reason that those statistics are so high and that we're not doing anything about it is because we just historically have not done anything about it. So you identify as Christian. Uh, there's, I mean, for any of us who identify as gay Christians, there's like that that battle between our faith mm-hmm. and our sexuality and what we've been told about our sexuality. Um, with with this, with with HIV, with the way that the church has stigmatized it, um, like I would imagine that that opens up a huge tension. <laughs> yes, <laughs> for you. Um, I, I'd be curious to hear more about like how how has your faith integrated with that when there has been so much harm done around HIV and AIDS? Well, I think, like I said, when I was diagnosed, a lot of, I was first asked, like, how many guys did you have to do, did you have to have sex with? Um, And I think a lot of, I was told, like, a lot of my initial questions were like, well, you did this to yourself, even if I want to be like the good, proud gay man who is, you know, at peace with my identity. I think a lot of getting diagnosed really brought up a lot of those shameful questions that I had thought I'd been over. Um, that I thought I'd worked myself through and been realized, you know, I don't have this internalized homophobia. And then I did again because I was HIV positive. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with growing up as a conservative Christian um, and being told that these, that certain traits, whatever those traits are, there's certain traits out there that make you a moral failure or make you a spiritual failure. Um, and one of those is being gay, and then another one is being HIV positive. Um, and I think you see this back through the start of the AIDS crisis. Um, there's a quote from uh, Jerry Falwell, everyone's you know favorite pastor, um, who he says something, I'm going to uh, paraphrase, but he says, when talking about AIDS, um, he said that uh, basically trying to help people with HIV who are dying of AIDS would be like the Israelites reaching back into the Red Sea to save members of Pharaoh's army. HIV isn't the isn't just a punishment for the homosexuals. It's a punishment for the society that tolerates homosexuals. So it was viewed by him as a just punishment from God for being gay or when children started being, like Ryan White, started being diagnosed with HIV um, because of blood transfusions, which has a whole racist history to it that I could get into also. That was, that was justified too. Even children dying of HIV was justified because that they were living in the American society that tolerated homosexuality. And so I think, yeah, it's fair to say that there's some tension between being a Christian and being <laughs> HIV positive. Um, <laughs> and so I think I think that's fair. Um, but I think then what I have to do really is, frankly, ignore the church a little bit and go back to like the Bible um, and go back to what if I believe in Jesus, uh, what Jesus did for people who were sick. And I think the first thing that I kind of found myself looking at was Jesus' miracle, healing miracles of healing sick people, um, and specifically the story that I've 
constantly gone back to um, is him healing the lepers um, because it just feels like such a perfect comparison to HIV and the ways we've stigmatized HIV. Um, the lepers in Jesus' day were cast out of society um, because there was no known cure for leprosy and because uh, that was seen, leprosy was seen as a sign of their moral failing, as a physical sign of a sin. Um, we, we see this with other diseases too. I think of when Jesus came upon with his disciples a blind man and the disciples asked who sinned this man or his parents that this man should be born blind there's it's again you're seeing that they really believe that these like illnesses that these disabilities were a sign of a spiritual failing and so i think when we're looking at hiv we hear the same thing when I mean, that's what Jerry Falwell is saying. He's saying that this is a punishment from God, that HIV is a punishment from God for your homosexual sin. And so I think, okay, great. That's what, you know, has what society has thought and has thought for a long time, for thousands of years. This is not a, this is maybe a newer disease, but it's not, it's a very old idea. And so when I think of what Jesus did, um, I have to like look very closely, and I think what we see in the Bible very clearly when Jesus is dealing with the lepers is that he he completely reverses the script. Jesus doesn't care that these met that these men and women are uh lep are lepers. He doesn't care about their disease. He completely embraces them. Um, he completely spends t- he spends time with them. He, uh, you know, doesn't cast them out. In fact, he allows them to approach him. Um, and I just think that's the exact opposite of what the church has historically done. Uh, the the vast majority of the church. There are definitely strong examples. I think of someone like Yvette Flunder in Oakland, um, who has just historically done so much for the HIV positive community there. Um, and uh, what's uh, there's a church. Judson Memorial Church in New York that has historically been a great center for um, HIV positive care. Um, I, there's, you know, churches here and there, and I think of the MCC as another example, uh, that denomination. But um, to my point, the vast majority of the church was silent when talking about HIV, if not outright condemning. Um, and I think that just doesn't line up with what we see in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I like I'm I'm honestly like finding myself at a, a little bit of a loss for words um because of just because of how poorly but like almost intentionally poorly um our faith communities have responded to this um and it, it just seems so unjust uh, and so against what you're what you're talking about that like what we see in scripture like one part of me is like, this is mind blowing. And another part of me is like, it's not mind blowing at all. It's par for the course. Uh, all of that to say, um, for, for people who are listening to this and who are, um, maybe learning about this for the first time or realizing like, wait, maybe I should get tested or, um, like what, like what advice do you have for people who are wanting to, move forward um who are wanting to help fight hiv stigma help fight hiv like what are things that people can do yeah um that's frankly 
I'll admit I'm not an expert on I I I hope people think I sound intelligent, but I'm not an expert on HIV. Um, there are people who know a lot more than I do, frankly. Um, and but I so I think what I'm saying is that that's been a hard question for me to answer because I'm just like, oh, what do you do? Oh, there's so many things I don't even know all the things. Um, one very simple thing that I think I've settled on as a very practical simple step because so when we talk about HIV so many of these problems that we're talking about are institutional they are they aren't things that you can just like go out and resolve in a, a month or two you have they take years decades they are so ingrained into our society um so i always want to like give you a practical things um and one thing that i've settled on is uh practicing what I'm calling, what I call HIV inclusivity. Um, what I mean by that is that, as I've mentioned before, HIV touches on so many different areas. It uh, touches on things like racial uh, injustice. It touches on drug abuse. It uh, touches on healthcare, uh, like the healthcare fight and like accessing healthcare. Um, it touches on criminal justice reform and on sexual education are two other areas um, that I think are just like much l- are different things that HIV can be part of um, that uh, that af- affect the way HIV works and functions um, in America and globally. Um, and I think that that's a big way that churches can very easily without needing to start a new HIV ministry without needing to go out and start a organization to fight HIV um, they can that anyone can really start just practicing what I, like HIV inclusivity um, when you're talking about I think drug use I think you see a lot of churches getting really involved in um, talking about the opioid epidemic talking about um, drug abuse and I think there are lots of very simple ways that churches can start practicing can start really stepping up to the plate to uh, deal with that crisis, uh, whether that's hosting NANAA groups. Um, I think another great thing is advocating for safe needle disposal and needle exchange programs in communities. Um, I think a lot of churches are getting behind criminal justice reform, and in 26 states, there's still laws that criminalize HIV-positive people for exposing another individual to HIV. So people who are HIV-positive will go to jail if they if they accidentally if they infect someone else with HIV. Um, and I think that's a very easy way, place where churches who want to get involved with criminal justice reform can get involved by starting to advocate to change those laws. Um, I think any church that's talking about racial justice work needs to spend time focusing on the ways people of color are uniquely disenfranchised from proper sexual education and adequate health insurance, which puts them at greater risk for HIV. Um, so there's just there's boundless ways I think that people can start to get involved um, with that. The other things I think of um, that might be a bit larger scale, but are one, encouraging people to get tested. Um, if you are listening to this podcast and you don't remember the last time you got tested for any STDs, if you don't uh, know, if you haven't gotten tested in more than six months, um, go get tested. If you don't know how to get tested, uh, 
hopefully Matthias will put my links in there. They can reach out to me and I can help people like find out how they need to get tested in their community. Um, it's easy, it's safe, it's secure. Um, and it's so important because like I said, one seventh of all people in America don't know they're HIV positive, which is mind boggling, um, but is so scary. And people really should know. Um, you see people dying of AIDS because they simply never got tested. Um, and that's terrifying. Um, and then the other thing I think is um, paying attention to HIV related news, um, even simply just like signing up for like a Google alert for HIV related news is I think important because there's so much of it happening all the time, whether it's how we're funding, uh, how we're funding health insurance to how we're funding specifically HIV care um, to things like uh, the patent around Truvada, which is a once daily pill that, that uh, anyone can take uh, if prescribed by a healthcare provider that prevents the transmission of HIV Um that for non-positive people so that they can't be infected with HIV. Um, so f- uh, getting on that pill, but then also uh, finding ways to make it uh, more affordable for everyone. Because right now the pharmaceutical company that produces PrEP has inflated the cost more than 2,500% uh, from $6 to produce to $1,600 to buy it um, per month. Um, so it's just insane. Um there's just a, there's a lot of ways. Um, sorry, that kind of went off the rails. There. I should have ended with the HIV inclusivity, probably. But um, I, we could go back and talk about the other stuff more because there's so there's just so much. That's the thing. There's just so much to talk about here, um, which I guess is why I say HIV inclusivity is key. Um, practicing, um, yeah, whether that's whatever that whatever that looks like for your community for your for whether you're not, you're part of a church, whether that's, you know, and helping people go find out ways to get tested or whether that's, you know, again, hosting NA and AA groups at your church, um, whether that's supporting initiatives like Medicare for all or uh, the ACA, frankly, um, or whether that's providing sex ed at your church, which um, the UCC has a great, uh, which is my denomination. The UCC has a great program called Our Whole Lives. That is basically like a sex uh, holistic like body sex health education from youth to adulthood um you know providing free condoms at your church is like such a cool thing um i have a couple of friends who are in seminary and their seminaries provide free condoms at their health center and i'm just like that's so great churches should be doing that um so many little things i think that are so simple and easy but can really mean so much it sounds like Everyone can do something. <laughs> yes. Uh, there, there are steps that each one of us can be taking, even like this week, mm-hmm. um, to, to be able to, to work with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, and I think part of millennial burnout's a real thing. Um, and I think it's even worse, frankly, in Christian communities where we're told we have to care about every single issue all the time. And especially for those of us who are like in our like woke progressive circles, there's just so much. We have to care about the environment and we have to care about uh, racial justice and we have to care about uh, healthcare and we have to care about um, imp- impeaching the president or whatever. There's just so much. And that's why I really stress like, HIV can be a part of so many of those things. HIV practicing just like being aware of how HIV is impacted by the issues you're already working on, the issues you already care about is so key. 
um, to stopping this. HIV has always been a disease of ignorance and of stigma. And the ways that we can stop that are just by being aware. How can people find your work? And um, you? Yeah, I am online on Twitter and Instagram at Donnie Sure Legit, uh, which is a dumb high school nickname. Um, and, <laughs> and then I'm online um, at donlawrence.me, um, www.donlawrence.me, um, where that's mostly for like my graphic, my like day job work. Um, but people can, I, you can connect to my email there um, and definitely reach out to me there. Um, I'm always happy to hear from people. So thank you so much for joining me and for talking about this and for sharing parts of yourself with us. I'm really grateful. Yeah, um, of course. Thanks for having yeah. me. I really appreciate yeah, it. I really appreciate the time and opportunity. Yeah. So it's been a pleasure. You can find Donald online at donaldlawrence.me. He's on Instagram and Twitter at DonnieSureLegit. Those links and then links to more information about HIV, uh, finding testing centers, uh, resources around PrEP, all of those are in the show notes. So go check those out. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support of its listeners. Uh, to find out how you can join over 230 Patreon supporters and help keep Queerology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to help support the podcast is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review and I'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out and I'll get back to you eventually. It sometimes takes me a really long time. And until next week, y'all. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.